again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, if, you're, if you have a Bible, sort of new to it, Hebrews is a rather large book of the Bible, a big letter that's over toward the right-hand side, toward the end of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. You're going to see on the screen all the scriptures we're going to refer to and an outline of what we're talking about today. And if you're a note-taker, you find, uh, you'll find in your bulletin also a little insert called uh, Points to Remember that gives you some space to take some notes. Uh, we're in the fourth week today in a four-week series called Jesus Outside the Box. If you're in a very rough period of your faith, or maybe if you're actually uncertain about your faith, if you're not sure whether you're a real follower of Jesus or not, or maybe you have thought you have been, but now you're really considering not following Jesus any longer, then we would say probably part of the issue is here, you need a bigger Jesus. Uh, You need a Jesus who's larger than the box in which you've had him. Or maybe at the very least, you need a more consistent focus on Jesus. So far in this series, out of the book of Hebrews, we've said these things. First of all, Jesus speaks. He is our prophetic Savior. He tells us the truth about Himself and us. He tells us the good news. Secondly, Jesus atones. He's our priestly Savior. In fact, He is the perfect priest, and He Himself is the perfect sacrifice. Then last week, we saw that Jesus reigns. He is our kingly Savior. He is ruler over all, And he is the source of our true refuge and gives to this world true justice. Today, our message is about this. Jesus overcomes. Jesus overcomes. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he will enable you to be an overcomer as well in your life. Even before we read today's passage, let me tell you a little story behind uh, this passage for me personally. When this passage first came to be really, really meaningful to me. I was still a college student, and I was uh, a member of the summer youth staff of a church in Metairie, Louisiana, outside of New Orleans. And I was young, and I was vigorous, and I was energetic, and I had no idea how to have healthy boundaries in my life. So I showed up in Metairie, Louisiana for uh, like an 11 or 12-week stint, and you would have thought that it was my job to save all of New Orleans in 12 weeks. That's the way I went at it. Unless I was sleeping or eating or exercising, I was working. And when I got to the end of about, if I remember correctly, about eight or nine weeks of those 12, I found myself utterly exhausted. And besides my exhaustion, there were relational issues for me and some sin issues in my heart. And late one afternoon, I was hanging out in the youth offices of that church uh, with another event that night after having another long day, and I really felt like quitting. I just felt like handing in to the to the head youth guy on that staff. Here's my resignation. I'm going back to Alabama where I'm from. I've had it. But God led me toward this passage of Scripture, and after about an hour in this passage, I felt my heart re-energized for what God had called me to do that summer. A very powerful passage to me. It's from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you're following in the insert of your bulletin, that's in the English Standard Version, but I'll be using the New American Standard Bible. That's what you'll see on the screen and what I'll be using today. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says to us. 
Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside, literally throw off every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the main thing we'll look at today, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, we ask you right now that you would show us Jesus, that we would be drawn to him and gain our faith, in fact, from him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just in the last week or two, I heard the story of Julie Moss and what occurred to her in 1982. In 1982, Julie Moss was a college student. She was quite a runner, and she was used to running long distances, and so she decided to sign up for an Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. Now, she had never done one of these events before, but she was all set for it. And if you don't know what that event entails, it entails a 2.4-mile swim, then a 112-mile bike ride, and then just for the fun of it, to run 26 miles. So running 26 miles is a marathon, but then you add this other stuff to it. And I've been told by folks that know about this kind of thing, which I obviously do not. I've never done one of these, don't plan to. But I've been told that the reason the swimming doesn't come last is so many people would drown, and that makes total sense to me. (laughs) So they put that first, and then they put the bike next, and then they put the running next. Well, Julie Morris said, well, you know, I don't want to win this thing. I just want to finish. I'm a big runner. So she trained a little bit, but not really all that hard. So she enters the event, and then something unexpected happens. She is winning. And she's winning, in fact, by 20 minutes being ahead, 20 minutes of the next person. So her attitude changes. I'm going to win this thing. So she pushes and pushes until she gets to the very last mile, and that's when her body betrayed her. 139 miles of aerobic exercise caught up with her legs, and they folded underneath her. She told an interviewer later, I was telling my body to get up, and my body was saying no. Well, she didn't totally give up, though. She began to crawl, and back on her legs she went, and she sort of stumbled, finally stumbled across the finish line, not winning it. A lot of people had passed her. But somewhere in that last mile, she just hit a wall. Let me ask you, in some responsibility that God has called you to, have you sort of hit the wall? You feel like quitting? Maybe it's a responsibility in your job. Maybe it's your job totally. You just want to throw in the towel, I quit. No mas, no more. Maybe it's in some ministry opportunity here at the church. You've been volunteering here or some ministry somewhere else, and it's gotten more and more difficult, and you, you feel like quitting. Uh, maybe you're in vocational ministry. And when you entered vocational ministry, someone called you, uh, told you it would be terrific and exciting and always easy, and they lied to you. Sometimes vocational ministry is exciting and thrilling. It's hardly ever easy. And you feel like quitting this thing that God has called you into. Or maybe it's on the family side of life. Maybe uh, there's a father or mother in your life and you're just fed up with him or her. Maybe there's a son or daughter that's brought you to the end of your rope and you wish you could just quit being a parent to this person, young or old. Maybe it's your marriage. 
and you really want to quit your marriage. Maybe you want to quit it legally, and if you don't quit the marriage legally, you want to quit it emotionally. You're at the end of your rope. You've hit the wall. You want to quit. Or maybe you're battling against some besetting, nagging, ongoing sin in your life. And the truth of the matter is you've stopped fighting against it. You've thrown in the towel, or at least you want to. And maybe it's not just a particular calling, a particular responsibility. Maybe just like the people to whom this letter was first written, when it comes to the very idea of being a Jesus follower, you're ready to quit. Maybe in your heart of hearts you've already quit, but you've never told anybody because it would rock your world too much. But secretly, you no longer believe what you used to believe and you know it. Or maybe you would say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but there is some scandalous, horrendous sin in your life. And you have stopped fighting against it. You've stopped repenting of it. It is functionally the Lord of your life, and you've let it take that position in your life. And yet you've convinced yourself, I'll still be in heaven even if I let this thing rule my life. Or maybe it's not a sin of commission like that. Maybe what's overtaking your life is simply the sins of omission. You would say, sure, I'm a follower of Jesus, but in reality, other than occasionally coming to this worship service, you're not doing anything to seek Christ. You don't seek his word. You don't seek prayer. You don't seek fellowship with God's people. It would never enter your mind to serve other people in the name of Jesus or share the gospel with somebody else. But because of your family heritage or maybe because of things you did years ago, your attitude is, sure, I'm a follower of Jesus. But in very practical terms, you're not doing much following now. The truth of the matter is, every one of us in this room have a need for endurance. Maybe it's just endurance with a current relationship or a current calling and responsibility. All of us are in need of the long-term of endurance of not forsaking the following of Jesus. Today, we want to look at one specific thing that this passage tells us to do. It's one big main idea, and it is this. You'll see it on the screen. We are to run this race of following Jesus by fixing our eyes on Jesus. How do you run the race of following Jesus? You fix your eyes on Jesus. I almost entitled this sermon, Fixated on Jesus, because that's the idea. But the question is this, what does that mean, and how do we do it? Today, we want to look at two things that are involved with fixing our eyes on Jesus. And underneath each of those two things, we'll look at two subpoints. And if that is starting to get confusing, don't worry. You'll see the outline here on the back screen and you'll see it part by part on the side screens as well, okay? Let's jump in. What does it mean to fix our eyes on Jesus? First of all, it means this, that we are continually recalling who he is. Continually recalling who he is. You see, it's who Jesus is that changes our lives. It's who Jesus is that brings us in a relationship with God. Remembering that summer in Metairie, Louisiana, reminded me of a gentleman there who was uh, really funny, and quite, uh, quite an encouragement to all of us on the staff of the church and also quite wealthy. I remember asking him one time at a fellowship event, well, what do you do? And he said, I'm a landman. I had no idea what that meant. What do you mean you're a landman? He says, well, I work for an oil company, and my job is to find properties on which it might be good to drill for oil, and then I try to work out a deal with the owners to try to either lease or purchase that property. 
Well, uh, he was a generous man, and one day he said to me, Bob, I'd like to take you to lunch tomorrow. Wear a coat and tie. Well, you know, in July in New Orleans, and you're 20 years old, you love wearing a coat and tie. Just can't wait to do that. So the next day, despite the heat and humidity, I put on a coat and tie, and he picked me up at, I guess, 11, 11.30, I don't remember now, and I found myself with him at the top of one of the tallest buildings in downtown New Orleans. And it was a restaurant at the top, all four sides were glass, amazing views of the Mississippi River and downtown New Orleans and far beyond, white tablecloth, fancy waiters, unbelievable food. And then I found out I was in a private club for people who were in the oil business. Now, how did I have access to this private club? Well, it wasn't because of who I was. It's because of who I was with and because of who he was. Same thing here. The reason we have access to God the Father and to all the blessings of the covenant of grace is because of who Jesus is. Well, who is Jesus? Well, this book as a whole has said this. Who is Jesus? He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. That's who he is. Now, before we go any further, we need to say this. When we talk about this idea of fixing your eyes on Jesus, what that means is obviously not literally the eyes of, in your head, but the eyes of your heart. To fix your eyes on Jesus means that he is the, pri the, the primary object of the focus of your heart. That he is the object of your faith and he's the object of your affection. This word in the Greek, fix, means not just a glance or look at. It's one reason I use this New American Standard Bible translation. It doesn't say looking to Jesus, it says fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's a better translation. To look away from other things and stare at Jesus. It's like a sprinter looking at the finish line, running toward it. Or maybe even better, looking at him as the object of your affection. Like a bride coming down the aisle and seeing at the end of the aisle her groom. And all the rest of the room sort of drops away and fades away as she sees the object of her affection. Or sort of like maybe a trapeze artist who has let go of one trapeze, and he is now in the air, midair, and turning to grab the next trapeze coming toward him. And his eyes are fixated on that bar onto which he will hold and which he will put his faith in to keep him from injury or death. That's the idea here. The idea that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus means the, he's the greatest object of our affection. He's the object of our faith and trust. Now, why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because of who he is. We get from him the truth. We get him from him the good news. Why? Because he's our prophet. We get from him the atonement for our sins and the forgiveness of our sins. Why? Because he is our priest. And we get from him a defense against the sins that would rule us. We get from him guidance, direction. Why? Because he is our king. And we look at him, first of all, because of who he is, prophet, priest, and king. Now, this idea of him being our king and our prophet and our priest, all three, relates to something else that's in this verse. It says here, not only fixing our eyes on Jesus as we run the race, it also says this, laying aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. 
You see, I don't know that much about running track. I ran track when I was a little kid, but not even as a teenager. But I do know this. If you're, if you're running in a track event, you don't want to wear rain boots and an overcoat and a three-piece suit. I don't care how good you are. You're not going to win if you're taking with you all of those encumbrances. You're going to get tangled up and fall. Well, that's the idea here. Sin will seriously wear you out. Embraced, unrepented of sin will make you stumble in your following of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is consistent in saying this. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a person who is consistently repenting of sin. The book, the book here says, let there be no one among you who embraces a root of bitterness, unrepented of, embraced bitterness. That will kill your soul, my friends. Let there be no one among you, he says, who yields to immorality, Oh, no one here in the room that hasn't been guilty of some kind of immorality. But he means unrepented of, embraced, coddled immorality that's not dealt with, that's not struggled against. He says, let there be no one among you who embraces a value system that's totally about this world now, this age now, not really believing in, not building your life around the kingdom of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, the things you can't see with your eyes the things that are really there. He says, let none of those things happen. Why? Because those things will kill your faith. They're incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. Now, all of us have had those things in our lives. Here's the question. Are you fighting against it? Are you struggling against it? Are you daily embracing over and over again a repentance against those things in your life? That's the question. And why is it that we repent from those things? It's because of who Jesus is. We fix our eyes on him because he is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. Now, that's what the writer of Hebrews has said in the first 10 chapters of the book. But here in chapter 12, he defines Jesus a different way. He says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter of our faith. That's who he is. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it carries the idea that he's the pioneer of our faith. He's the one who's gone before us. He's the one who has led the way. He's the one who's opened the way for us. He opened the way even through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he takes us into the very presence of God, and we are huddled behind him for our protection and for our guidance. And he takes us with him even into the very presence of God. He's the pioneer of our faith. He shows us what it's all about. But it also means this. Faith is a gift from God, and that gift has been given to us through Jesus, and he is the one who will see it through to the end. He's the founder of our faith. He gave it to us, and he's the perfecter of our faith. It's just the same thing as the apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.6. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He's the one that's going to carry you through to the end. I like the way another preacher has said it. You won't see it on the screen, so just listen carefully. He says, Christ is the one who is charged with the stoking of the furnace of our faith so that the embers never die. He is the one who takes our flagging faith and kindles it into a full flame again. If you are in Christ, it is your fragile and weak faith that is in his hands, and he perfects it. It is your flagging spirit he revives. It is your lingering doubts he removes. It is your mustard seed of faith he promises to grow into a mighty tree. It is you whose faith he lovingly created, and you whose faith 
he lovingly sustains. Well said. If you've heard me preach through the years, you know I'm a real fan of C.H. Spurgeon, the British 19th century preacher. Let me read you two quotes by Spurgeon that talks about why our focus is to be upon Christ if we're to keep following Christ, if we're to battle against the power of sin in our life. This is what he says in his devotional morning and evening. We go to Christ for forgiveness, and then too often, we look to the law for power to fight our sins. Now, let me stop and say, here's a caveat. The law of God is good. It's very important that we understand God's law. Otherwise, we don't know what righteousness is or what sin is. We, we have to know his law, and we have to love his law. His law is his will for our lives. And if we love him, we'll love what he wants us to do. But here's the point. The law doesn't give us the power to obey the law. The law doesn't give us the power to obey the law. That comes from Jesus. So he says, we go to Christ for forgiveness and then too often look to the law for power to fight our sins. No, take your sins to Christ's cross. For the old man can only be crucified there. We are crucified with him, which, by the way, is why our lead pastor, when he teaches about the fullness of the Holy Spirit, teaches from Romans 6. Because Romans 6 is about our union with Christ in his life and death and resurrection. He says, the only weapon to fight sin with is the spear which pierced the side of Jesus. Ordinances, that is the Lord's Supper and baptism, are nothing without Christ as a means of mortification, that is a means of killing sin. Your prayers and your repentance and your tears, the whole of them put together are worth nothing apart from him. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good, says the hymn, or helpless saints either, says Spurgeon. You must be conquerors through him who loved you if you are a conqueror at all, our laurels, that is, the wreath of victory on our heads, must grow among his olives in Gethsemane. In other words, his suffering is the reason we have victory over sin. Well said. Here's another uh, quote from Spurgeon from a sermon of the Old Testament. He said this, if God in his great grace has given Jesus to you, get out of him all that you can. And do not think that he will consider you to be intruding. It is the delight of his heart to give out of his fullness to his needy people. He is best satisfied with you when you are best satisfied with him. He gets most from you when you get most from him. We run this race by fixing our eyes on Jesus because of who he is. It's the first thing we want to look at. The second thing it means to fix our eyes on Jesus is this to be continually remembering what he has done. We not only recall who he is, we remember what he has done. First of all, we remember what he has done for other people. We remember what he's done for others. In this passage, it begins, in fact, with a very odd thing. It says, therefore, having been surrounded by such a cloud or such a large group of witnesses. Now, as a teenager, as a kid, and as a teenager, and even in my 20s, I think when I first read this passage, I thought this was talking about those that are witnesses of my life. So I'm surrounded with people that are looking me and looking at me and looking at how I live my life. So I need to run with endurance because they're looking at me. And then I realized, no, the, the cloud of witnesses around me, that's not the people that live around me now. That's all these people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. These great people in what has been called the hall of fame of faith. That's what it's talking about. And I had the imagery in my mind that these people up in heaven were looking down at me and they were like my cheering section, you know, pulling for me to follow Jesus. And when I was in youth ministry, I would teach it that way. And people really liked that part of my sermon. They always did. 
oh boy, Abraham is pulling for me and Moses and all the rest. The only problem is that's not at all what it means. What I found out later was these witnesses are not witnesses of my faithfulness or the lack thereof. They are witnesses of the faithfulness of God. So in chapter 11, he says, let me remind you, you're surrounded with all these people who have been witnesses that God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And he will see you through to the end. He is the foundation and reason for your faithfulness. For example, a couple of examples. There's the example of Noah. Noah labored for decades and decades building the ark. He endured because God gave him the strength to endure. But here's the point. Noah was a scandalous sinner. He did some awful things. But God was greater than his sin, and he endured all all the way to the end. There's the example of Abraham. Abraham believed the promise of God decade after decade after decade that God would give him an heir, and from that heir would be the salvation of the world. Abraham was a scandalous sinner. He did awful things. But God was greater than his sin, and he endured because God gave him the strength to endure. This is also the way the writer of Hebrews expresses it in verses 32 and 33 of Hebrews 11. He says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. Now let's remember, Gideon was a coward. Samson was a philander and a braggart. David was a murderer and adulterer. But God forgave them. God changed them. God enabled them to follow the Lord for a lifetime. Here's the other side of the coin. Not people that did great things in the name of God, but people who endured hard things in the name of God. Verses 36 through 40. And others experienced mockings and scourgings and, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, In other words, these people suffered for their faith. Were you suffering? They suffered more. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. That is, here on earth, they didn't get what they thought they would get. Why? Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Let me tell you what he's saying here. He's saying basically this. The end of their life on earth was not the end of their story. And the end of your life on earth, when you die physically, that's not the end of your story. The end of your story and my story, not really the end, but what it's leading up to is this. Then when Jesus returns, not apart from one another, but all together, that's when we inherit the unshakable kingdom. That's when we enter the new Jerusalem. It's not about me, it's about we. And God has put this whole thing together that we get there together and together we inherit that kingdom. Together we go into that celestial city. Together we see Jesus face to face. And God is working in our lives together. Now here's the point of what he's tried to say by pointing back to chapter 11. He said this, these people's stories should encourage you. These people's stories should encourage you. And that is this, God forgives terrible sinners And God turns faithless people into faithful people because he is the foundation of our faithfulness. That's what he's saying. So we remember what he has done for others. 
but also, most importantly today, we remember what he has done for us on the cross. What he's done for us on the cross. Now, let, just me, let me parenthetically say this. When I talk about remembering and recalling, I don't mean here just, oh yeah, I remember it, I recall it, I know that information. Scripturally, to remember and to recall like this means to recall with faith. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it's impossible to please God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the whole book of Hebrews basically is saying if you only live your life for the things you can see with these eyes, you will give up following Jesus. You must see with a heart of faith those things you can't see with your physical eyes, and then you will persevere. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's that kind of remembering, that kind of recalling. It says in Hebrews 11, you have need of endurance. And where does that endurance come from? He says it in Hebrews eleven twenty three. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. And my friends, that's the point of what he's saying here. Where is it that we see the faithfulness of God most clearly? What is the one event in the history of mankind that says indisputably, God will be faithful. He loves you that much. He has committed that much to you to be faithful in your life and make you faithful. My friends, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross is simply not our example. The cross is the means of our power. Look again at the primacy of the cross in this passage, verses 2 and 3. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted if you find yourself on the receiving end of hostility. Let me ask you this. What did Jesus endure on the cross and before the cross? He endured the rejection and mockery of the leaders of Israel for three years. He endured the betrayal of one of the twelve. He endured being deserted by the three people on this earth that were the closest to him. He endured being flogged with a Roman cat of nine tails, a whip with nine leather straps, and embedded in each one were bits of rock and glass and metal. His back was shredded to pieces when they finished with 39 lashes. He endured carrying the cross beam of his own cross to the hill of Golgotha. He endured having large, huge nails nailed through his wrist and through his ankle to a cross. He endured having his shoulders probably taken out of their sockets when the cross fell into place in the hole in which it stood. He endured the most agonizing, brutal death ever invented by mankind against other human beings. Besides all of that, he endured from sinners the mocking and insults of those who stood literally a few feet away from him. The writer of Hebrews says, no matter what you're suffering as a follower of Jesus, no matter what he calls to you, his suffering for you was greater. And he endured. He obeyed to the end. And his endurance is not your example, not only your example. His endurance is the reason you can endure. That's what this thing is all about. Hear me well. The power for our perseverance the power for our obedience, the power for our faithfulness flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. Just like in the Old Testament, Moses struck the rock, and out of that rock flowed life-giving water to Israel in the desert. 
And when the eye of faith strikes the cross of Christ, life-giving faithfulness flows out of that cross to faithless people like you and me. That's the teaching of this book. Yes, that faithfulness, that power for obedience, that power for persevering, yes, it comes through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But the source is Jesus. The source is the cross. The source is the empty tomb. And our faith is placed there. That's what we learn in this book. How do we land the plane on this? How do I summarize it? The book of Hebrews basically has two big parts. One part is to say this, God has called you to perseverance. Do not give up following him. Don't stop repenting of sin. Don't stop fighting against sin. Don't lose your profession of faith, practically, outwardly, nor inwardly. But here's the good news of the book of Hebrews. What God demands of you, he will put into you. What God requires of you, he will fulfill in you. And that's where you're to look. Because Jesus overcomes. We as his people overcome. I will overcome. You will overcome. Because Jesus persevered, we can and will persevere if we know him. Because he remained faithful, you and I can remain faithful. Because of his fidelity, our lives can be marked by fidelity. He takes faithless people like Bob Cargo. He takes faithless, disobedient people like you too. And he turns us into faithful followers, not perfect followers, but faithful followers all of our lives, all for his own glory. How does he do it? He does it by spirit, and he does it by his word, and he does it because of the cross. That's the good news of this book. This book ends with a benediction that is perhaps the greatest way of summarizing all of this. It says God's called you to do something, and he's the one who will equip you. And it's because of his death and his resurrection. Let me read this benediction for you. It says this. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. There's the resurrection. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, the death of Jesus. Even Jesus our Lord. May he equip you in every good thing to do his will. To obey his commands. To keep following after him. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, in certain church traditions, and ours is not one that emphasizes a lot of uh, bodily movements and that kind of thing, but in certain church traditions, a way of receiving a benediction is to stand and to hold your hands out as if you're receiving a gift. Let me ask you to stand for a moment. And uh, if you feel uncomfortable holding your hands out like this, that's fine. And we're, a lot of us here are Presbyterians, you can put your hands in your pockets and not move. But to maybe be a little more Anglican about it, if you want to sort of hold out your hands as a way of saying, in my heart and in my body, I want to receive a blessing that comes from God. In representing him, I now give you this blessing. May the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, I ask you right now to make that come true for every believing heart in this room. Because of the blood of Jesus, because of his resurrection from the dead, may you work in them. May you work in me your will.
May we embrace your law. May we follow you faithfully no matter the opposition, no matter the persecution, no matter how great our struggle is against sin. Give us the grace to keep struggling and fighting and battling and moving forward until the day you return or until the day we die. Oh, Lord, work in us what you require of us. And we thank you, Lord, that you're the kind of Savior who takes faithless people like us and you make us faithful because Jesus is faithful. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.